0: Take a network break. Fuel up with a virtual donut as we dash through this week's tech news. We've got more Derman Strang in the open source, a security acquisition by Checkpoint, microchips for cheese, listener follows up, and more. We're sponsored today by BackBox. BackBox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device on the network through a single pane of glass supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. For example, you can execute an OS upgrade across Cisco, Checkpoint, and Palo Alto the firewalls with a single click. Get an eval copy and see for yourself at backbox.com slash packetpushers. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Network Break is just one show in the constellation of the Packet Pushers content universe. Our latest shows are Heavy Wireless and Kubernetes Unpacked. Plus, there's Heavy Strategy with Greg Farrow and Jonathan Johnson, Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, and Full Stack Journey. You can find them all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's get into a couple of follow-ups, or FU. Uh, one listener wanted to suggest a quick news segment. Uh, definitely it's limited to the U.S.-based folks, but uh, the NTIA, that's a government agency here in the U.S., rolled out a funding program that's going to invest $42.45 billion in funding to all 50 U.S. states and territories. Uh, this is to be spent on infrastructure deployment, skills training, and access to technologies to connect to the Internet.
1: Yeah, this happened oh, a couple of years ago, Drew. I think we talked about it a little bit Um But I don't think we've actually covered it specifically more as something that we've done tangentially. Um, And for people outside the USA, and if you're not aware of what's actually happening is when you're talking about $42 billion being spent on networking, this just Creates a massive distortion in the market demand for networking products. Now, some of it will go for digging fiber in, some of it will go for more mobile towers so people can do wireless broadband. Sometimes it will be for trenching fiber in and then digging ponds up to people's housing and passive optical networks. Um, But a substantial amount will be built on DWDM and routers. So it was about two years ago we saw a big push from the vendors. Remember, you know, all that stuff we've talked about with silicon optics Mm -hmm. and IP over DWDM? That's all related to this project. Project, in my opinion. While all of those technologies were were slowly developing, they really got a kick along when the US government announced 40 odd billion dollars to be spent on WAN upgrades, what is fundamentally WAN infrastructure, public WAN infrastructure um, in the US. And so what you've seen is a lot of projects in the back room, new models of routers, this emergence of IP over DWDM or, or DWDM to the router sort of stuff has really kicked up uh, investor uh, share price impacts was taken into account about two years ago, uh, when the government announced this project. The financial advi- and, uh, analysts and so forth looked in this and calculated which one of the companies was going to be the most benefit. You know, was it DWDM? Was it fiber optic? So, for example, right now there's already a shortage of fiber optic cable in the US, and we saw just this week. I think it was Nokia announced that they're now building a fiber optic factory in the USA. I think it was Wisconsin. I uh, can't remember for sure, but do some searches. Um, so what we're actually seeing is like all of this geopolitics around network infrastructure where th- where companies before would have just gone to China. They're now saying, ah, now's the right time to build a factory to make fiber because we can't rely on China as a, as a reliable source now. Uh, and they're actually v- building them in countries where political points will be scored. So there's a distortion towards building these types of factories. I think we'll see it happen in Europe as well uh, in the near future, but it, where before stuff would have just been done, at, you know, other places somewhere else and and it would have sorted out. So those sorts of the political distortions are actually coming out. Um, the challenge that I have is that the FCC, I don't know, if, have you been tracking the FCC much lately and how many problems they're having post the previous administration?
0: Uh, I know that there are issues. I haven't been tracking them closely.
1: So the FCC has, in the previous administration, appointed a person who went for very uh, light touch control over the telcos. And the telcos got a whole pile of process and and stuff rescinded. Uh, during his administration of the FCC. And a lot of controls and processes that were associated with how to spend this sort of money were actually dismantled and destroyed. And now the FCC is looking for a way to say, well, we need to spend this money, but we need to ensure that it's well spent. And the tools that they need, the reference data that they need to say, there's so many people in this location and so forth, have actually, a lot of them were just actually destroyed or not being updated. So now the current FCC is sort of struggling a bit To get out there and say, like, well, how do we know? And of course, the incumbent telcos have now established these massive teams of people who know how to game what's left of the system because that FCC was almost completely captured by the US telcos over there. And now that we've got, uh, you know, the income, I think it's fair to say the incumbent tel- calcos aren't exactly lying, but they're certainly sharing very limited amounts of truth about the factors that will impact where the money will be spent. In other words, they want to make sure they get as much free money as possible. So it's kind of well known. This has been underway for quite a few years. And I think it will go on for quite a, quite a bit more time before the EFCC will be in a position to start handing out broadband grants. There has been a previous $10 billion fund go out. The government spent it, but a lot of the organizations that took the money have um, either failed to spend it because of the COVID or whatever, uh, and/or the companies went broke, and/or they were attacked by various incumbents. So, you know, if somebody brought on a, a smaller telco, you know, maybe a statewide one to do stuff, then the other telcos, you know, the incumbent, the big mega telcos in the U.S., would do something to extinguish them or make competition very difficult. So. It is a very difficult time over there, and the FCC is going to have a very difficult time getting this off the ground. I wouldn't be too keen or set my hopes that I am suddenly going to get much bandwidth in rural America. And the other thing I note is that the FCC actually defines broadband as 25 meg down and 2 meg up, which is... By most country standards, a pittance. Like most countries would regard the minimum speed of broadband as 100 meg down, and 10 meg up. And the America, you know, in the USA, the that actual standard is far, far less than most people would expect.
0: Uh, one clarification: I believe this 42.5 billion of funding is new funding um, announced recently. I think in June, uh, as part of a larger um, infrastructure bill that was passed here in the US. Uh, So it is new money, Uh, although I do agree that uh, (laughs) often the money paid to uh, telcos and ISPs to actually get connectivity into rural areas tends not to yield great results. Um, There's been you know, some new advances, I, I in particular, we, we did a show on Packet Pushers about WISP, wireless internet security providers that are able to provide mm. uh, connectivity to more rural areas because you don't need to drag fiber all the way to the end user. So maybe there's some opportunity here to, to spend this money more wisely. And also each, each state gets a, a portion of it so they can propose grants and entities within these states can propose grants. I'll also note that often when, you know, Municipal governments, cities, localities want to try to roll out uh, some kind of localized broadband to provide to customers. They tend to get pushback from ISPs and telcos who don't want to compete with the municipalities. Uh, so that is an issue, And it?
1: There's huge um, problems, uh, things like if you want to run uh, telco cables on existing poles, well, those poles might be owned by an electricity company. That electricity company might do a deal with, the, with an incumbent telco. Right. And that they can make it very difficult for you to get access to those polls. And those polls are often have local legislation. They might have state legislation attached to them and they end up, you know, just stuck in problematic situation where nothing can happen. So (laughs) yes, the money is allocated. It is new, but I was also pointing out that previous allocations, which I believe was about 10 billion from about five to eight years ago. A lot of that never ever got spent because of the difficulties of doing
0: this. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see. Right. It's not just a money problem. So uh, but uh, thanks for the the note uh, to this listener who brought it to our attention. We we appreciate it. We can't see everything, so we're always happy to get uh, input. Yeah. And if you've got uh, an idea, a show idea, a correction, comment, whatever, you can hit us up, packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, one more FU to go before we get into our news portion. This person asked us not to disclose their identity, and that's fine. We're happy to keep you anonymous. Uh, but we were talking about... Uh, open source issues and open source companies being worried about a competitor essentially taking that free software and building a competitive product. And Greg, you had talked about uh, Netbox uh, and Netbox maybe being forked, and he had some pushback about uh, the Netbox fork not being a valid example.
1: And I thought carefully before I chose Netbox, but what I was highlighting there at the time was that Jeremy Stretch, who was the founder and creator of Netbox to the largest extent, was not pleased when Netbox was forked and then turned into a separate product. Now, when the product was forked, it was taken on and you know that company that forked the product has gone on to do great things with it. And as this person points out, they've added new features, they've built new applications, they've contributed back to community with YouTube videos and Slack channels and automation courses and all that sort of stuff. That's fine. My perspective was looking at it from the perspective of Jeremy's perspective, who was saying, look, I spent years building this product in multiple states. I've put my life behind it. And then they just picked it up and took it away. Right? Now, that is the nature open source. And my point here is that as these projects get larger and larger, it becomes less and less clear about the concept of fairness. If you can pick up something that a company has spent years and years working on and developing and building a business and to just say, now I'm going to take all that work and make money out of it. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yeah. Yep. Which is, mm. we'll get into this a little bit uh, in, a, in an upcoming story um, around HashiCorp, who essentially said... <laughs> We're trying to change the rules so that this doesn't happen to us.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, that was as we were talking about it. But I mean, the point here is that the original open source, you know, ideal and model was sort of more to be built in an era when programs were small and one person could achieve a lot. You know, talking about, I'm thinking of Bram Molinar around VI or Vim, right? And one person or, or the team around Curl, it's, it's largely one person, but with a team of others. You know, assisting, but primarily keeping it focused and on point. Those tools are small tools. When you start talking about things like uh, Terraform or NetBox, you're talking about huge apps. And what I think is the problem is that, you know, if you take them, you end up with an interesting situation where who knows, uh, you know, it is just look at what AWS has done to Elasticsearch and MongoDB. They literally took the products because they didn't want to pay them. A fair fee for them and then did something and just took it away. And Terraform is a very big success on AWS. They don't want AWS to take away their business. As I said, HashiCorp has 500 million in annual revenue. It has costs of 700 million. It's losing 250 million a year. It's still a growth business. It's got a market valuation, I think, of about 5 billion, some outrageous valuation, which doesn't Uh seem very reasonable to me. That is its situation. But Jeremy said he wished that he had not used open source licensing; that he had gone with a business license, which said you can use my product, just don't set up a business in competition with me, um, so that he would be able to, you know, maintain control of the project that he started and spent invested years and years into. Yeah. So, yeah, you can say you can glam it up all you like. You took the product and you've done all of these great things with it, but it's not like, you know in the case of netbox jeremy abandoned the project and there was no where for it to go there was no team around it left to continue it going so you picked it up to keep the project going you took it because you wanted to take it in a different direction and exploit it for money in part or in whole right so yeah. there's a there's a difference there
0: yeah we'll get into that a little bit further but let's get into some news uh, and again if you have questions comments or whatever hit us up slash fu we love to get the feedback As many as 10 driverless taxis were temporarily halted in the San Francisco neighborhood of North Beach recently, blocking traffic and causing consternation. Uh, The taxi operator company called Cruise blamed attendees at a nearby music festival for overwhelming the capacity of the mobile network.
1: And of course, I am crowing. I told you so. Did I tell you so? (laughs) Did I? Did I? Did I tell you so?
0: I will go check the spreadsheet. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, so the 5G network in San Francisco, not surprisingly, was overloaded near to a music festival uh, just because there's so many people in a particular area. And these robot taxis just stopped in the middle of the road, which then blocked the streets for anybody else. Um, of course, San Francisco streets are not very car-friendly. And so you had all sorts of problems. So if you remember back to the early days of 5G hype, many, 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 many claims were made that mobile networks would be used for real-time processing just like this. That is, that mobile networks would be made ready for robot processing so that in the event of something like this happening, that this would not be possible. And this was mainly a justification for a technology called network slicing, which would start at the network edge, cross the network core, and so on. And it would be a massive financial revenue opportunity for everybody involved. And we have a network slicing, um, which everybody in the comments on this post, by the way, wherever it turns up, people always popped up saying if only we'd done network slicing and here's the thing no one has implemented network slicing for lots and lots of complex reasons right it's just so complicated to implement because it needs a whole bunch of much more expensive networking equipment implementing segment routing or MPLS it needs hardware costs it needs software costs it needs software to control And keep in mind that even though you might be connected to one mobile network, the car probably wants to connect to multiple networks because just if one isn't, the other one is. So now if you're going to have network slicing, you've got to have the same policy across all mobile carriers in a particular area. You've also got to combine it with DWDM. You've got to combine it with legacy services. And that's just never going to happen, right? It's just not a thing that's ever going to happen. So the idea that autonomous cars were ever going to use a network slice for guaranteed networking was... Just the most unlikely thing I've ever heard, and here's why, right? When these cars can't access the network, which is going to happen no matter what you do, you know, somebody puts up a five G, four G jammer. What's going to happen then, Drew? <laughs> I <don't know>. Right? Do <laughs> so exactly. the
0: cars just stop outside you? You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, the cars were programmed to just stop when they couldn't get a signal, because that's better than having them crash into pedestrians or run through stoplights or do whatever. So, uh, yes, traffic is bad, but <laughs> 10 taxis <laughs> smashing into stores or whatnot are driving on sidewalks because they couldn't get a signal is not a good thing. Or just
1: stopping in the middle of the street, right? It's just enough, like stopping...
0: Right. It's, it's, stopping in the middle of the street is not great. It's better than the alternative. But yes, uh, you're right. Uh, network slicing is so complicated. We've done a couple of shows on it. I'll, I'll see if I can find some links to put in the show notes. You've got... All kinds of terminology, all kinds of technology, and then you actually have to get the carriers to want to implement it and people to agree on it. It's well, not like, just the carriers, but you have to get the vendors to want. Right, to and the vendors, yes, the, right, yep. and then you have and to every get every vendor the, wants to try to do it their way so that they can control more of that money and yada yada yada.
1: And then you've got to have customers who are willing to pay for that extra feature. Right. right. So effectively, it's going back to the days of dedicated circuits. You're, right. What you're trying to do is build this dedicated circuit over the top of your mobile infrastructure and you and they want to build it end-to-end, but that's now a, a disag- disaggregated network. The 5G tower your, uses other people's networks to back all the traffic, right? Right. So it's not what it was. It's a very different network that we live in today. And to believe that all these people can realistically come together globally, right? It's got to be global. Can't just be like if you're Nokia or Ericsson, you don't want to just implement this in one country. You need it for every country. Right.
0: It's hard. Yeah, it not is. at all easy. Yeah, mm. and ironically, the the company uh, Cruise that uh, runs the Robotaxis is apparently considering building uh, its own private five G network in the San Francisco area to avoid problems like this. So instead That's of network hysterical. slicing, we're going to get <laughs> lots and lots happen. of private five G deployments. The chances of them getting licenses to put up five
1: G towers in you know what happens when. They go down, right?
0: Right. <laughs> that's
1: not, that's <laughs> not <laughs> going to fix that problem, right?
0: <laughs> yes. All right, moving on. Uh, video conferencing provider Zoom has revised language in its terms of service to assure customers that the contents of their voice and video calls won't be used to train AI models, whether Zooms or third parties. And that's according to a story in The Verge. A post on the website Hacker News recently raised concerns about Zoom's policies. Uh, Zoom went through a couple of revisions of language to assure customers, again, that Zoom isn't using their data without consent.
1: It's amazing how much Zoom can have, equip itself with double foot guns and then pull them both pull the triggers on both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they continue to stumble over and over and over here. Um, the, I think the point angle I want to take here is um to remind you that any sort of personal privacy is also corporate privacy. So just imagine if WebEx is recording, sorry, if Zoom is recording all of your calls and then using that to produce, uh, information and reports that they can then put into an AI and then sell to somebody to get competitive information about your company. That is a thing. That is a potential outcome if they are recording all your calls. I would note already that Webex has um, is doing this thing right now. So Cisco announced about two years ago, I want to say, that they are now using AI and ML to analyze your tone and the words that you speak mm-hmm. to perform senten- sentiment and content analysis on calls. But... To do that, the employer has to enable that feature. And where is the difference here between Zoom? Zoom just said, we're going to do it, made it a standard terms and conditions and said, you know, whatever. And that's what people aren't liking here. So people who are using this as a personal tool. But WebEx, when it's used by a company, is doing exactly this. Basically, everything that you say is recorded and it's analyzed and then reports are handed back to your employer to say that the average amount of happiness in your company is worse or better or People are talking to these people, or right. if they're looking for swear words or whatever. If they if they're or looking for call for centers are... to
0: see if a call center people are performing well or how customers are feeling about working with them. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: that's right. So yeah. it's a reminder, and this is a reminder ultimately that when you're using corporate communications, you should always assume that any tools they're giving you are monitored. The data is being collected, and you have zero personal privacy on a company WebEx or a company telephone or whatever. Right, but at the same time, the difference here is that. Zoom just went to the end game, just got lazy and stupid and said, everything is a, is just meat for our AI. Whereas at least Cisco has a, has a policy here, which is laudable, which says we respect people's privacies. You have to opt in. Such a little thing, right?
0: Well, Zoom has now updated to, to follow that policy. If you want to use Zoom's AI services, you have to opt in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so they did get burned a little bit, but uh, have, and, have adjusted.
1: Yeah, I bet they thought that they could capture all this voice and do an ai and then start selling models of a brand oh and i'm they sure thought they thought they were business. sitting on a yeah. gold
0: mine yeah absolutely yeah my point yeah. is uh, i think it's a reminder that when you engage with a SaaS platform or frankly any technology for your organization you, your lawyers are going to have to look through policies in terms of service to see how your data is being used uh, is it being adopted to train an ai whether that is or sold to third parties, uh, data is gold uh, and so companies are going to look to extract that gold so you mm-hmm. need to be careful when you're hiring on with somebody
1: well, the data isn't gold. It turns into gold. It's more like ore.
0: Sure, <laughs> the data is through. raw material, yeah. but but yeah. they want lots and lots of that raw material, and they will extract it wherever they can to turn it into gold. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there is that. But thank yeah, you for I improving just my to put metaphor. That
1: in. Yes, it still has to be smelted, <laughs> iron, and you, you have know, refined my
0: metaphor. How about that? <laughs> oh, look at that! <laughs> Double
1: down! Oh, oh. What?
0: Oh. All right, uh, Greg, this story is just for you. Uh, Broadcom has announced two new products in its Fibre Channel portfolio. The products include the X7 Director, which can scale up to 512 ports of 64 gigabytes for throughput per port. And the 7850 extension switch, which Broadcom says, can connect geographically dispersed SANs across wide area networks to support replication while protecting from latency and packet loss.
1: Yeah, so this uh, is an incremental update to Fibre Channel. It
0: brings it up to a whole 64 gigabytes, did you say? Ah, it just says bytes. I don't. I got to go check my notes, I think.
1: Yeah. I'd I'd have to say, because it was 32 before, you know, keep in mind that ethernet is now up to 800. And so getting fiber channel clocked up to 64 is like, eh? But, you know, there's some sort of punchline here that I should have, like, you know, that old technologies never die. They just smell like it or something, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think fiber channel is absolutely a marker that to show how slowly enterprise IT changes. Like, You could certainly argue that Ethernet isn't good enough for heritage block storage. That's why we invented Fibre Channel, right? right? You could argue that storage companies are not willing to use Ethernet because they want to use Fibre Channel, because they like having a proprietary storage network because they can use that to increase their revenues. They can charge a lot more for Fibre Channel than they can for Ethernet. It's not a competitive market. There's only two companies left in that. Uh, making the chips and just a few vendors making fiber, selling or OEMing fiber channel switches. You could also argue that the sunk cost of fiber channel is so high in many organizations that they're trapped. There's just not enough money to migrate away, like to Mm -hmm. go through the, the process of migrating to a modern storage system based around objects and instead of blocks or whatever, And you could also argue that the constant hype around new technologies like CXL, NVMe, NVMe fabrics, object storage, the end of spinning drives, like the end of traditional hard disk drives instead of SSDs, among other things, like there's lots and lots in that storage space. All of this new hype, this constant, there's something new, there's, you know, whatever, is just making it difficult for people, for customers in in corporates to say, we need to choose a strategy, but we just don't know. We can't tell. Is it CXL? Is it... Let's just put more Fibre Channel in and we'll wait a few more years and see how it goes. Anyway, whatever it is, the unanswered question of which one of those is true, I don't know, but I suspect it's all of them true.
0: I, th- I think so. Uh And just to clarify, it is 64 gigs of throughput per port uh, on that yeah. X7 director.
1: Yep. Yeah, Fibre Channel, where 100 gigs of underlying bandwidth turns into 64 gigs of throughput because <laughs> reliability. Yep. Because it's lossless. There you go. That's how it works, by the way. It actually uses the 100 gig ethernet physical components to do the data transmission, but because of the encoding is so poor, they can only get 64 gigs out of a hundred gig five. Yeah.
0: There you go. All right. Uh, this gets back to our conversation. We started earlier about uh, Derman strong and open source. Uh, last week we discussed HashiCorp changing some of its licensing from open source to business source, including its popular Terraform software. HashiCorp made the change because it was concerned that companies could build competing products using that open source software now, there's a new organization called the OpenTF Foundation, TF is for Terraform, threatening to fork Terraform unless HashiCorp switches back to an open source license. The OpenTF Foundation released a manifesto outlining its reasoning. The manifesto was signed by 87 companies and 266 individuals.
1: Yeah, we see this anytime a major open source project loses its way, shall we say, <laughs> um, you know, goes through some sort of transition like this. And the first thing to do is to set up a foundation and lobby the company that's closing the license to blah, blah, blah. It's all very like, again, you know, we talked about it last time. There's a number of possible things that could happen um, when you do this. Um, the fact that I can take a complete and absolutely copy a copy of the product that you are selling And then I can set up an operation that will continue to maintain and develop it. So these people are well within their rights to take a copy of the product. But I think what they're actually admitting here in, in the documentation is they're saying, we don't think we can actually build a company to maintain Terraform. We're asking HashiCorp to continue to make it open source. So it's not actually, oh, we're building an organization to sustain Terraform on a permanent basis. It's saying, please HashiCorp, switch Terraform back to an open source license. And I'm thinking like, that is wishing for fishes in the middle of a in the middle of a flood
0: yeah i think so it does sound like you know it, i was wondering like oh is this like somebody like aws who's just going to build the terraform copy off of this but it does sound mm-hmm. like it's community driven and they're hoping that hashicorp does this and they say if they have to fork it they're looking to set up a foundation or hopefully running it under the auspices of say the linux foundation so it does seem like a community creed, de corps uh, to, to HashiCorp to try to change their ways. Uh, the manifesto is worried that um, this business source license could introduce legal risk for companies or individuals who are using open source Terraform. The, the manifesto says, and this is a quote, now every company, vendor and developer using Terraform has to wonder whether what they are doing could be construed as competitive with HashiCorp's offerings. And under BSL, I guess HashiCorp could uh, come after you uh, if they feel like you're trying to compete with them.
1: No, I, I don't agree with that, and and I think that they are fundamentally misguided. If there are other companies out there that are taking Terraform and exploiting that to make revenue for themselves, do you have a right to take somebody else's work and monetize it? Because keep in mind that HashiCorp isn't just about Terraform. They have a whole range of products where they build around the outside to monetize the product that they built, right? Right. And the, in the time that they came through, they built Terraform as open source as a way of coming to market they were, were very clear about it. But keep in mind that HashiCorp also makes Nomad, Waypoint, Vagrant. It has a whole plethora of other products. It has Packer, Console, Vault for Secrets, Boundary. Now, whether you believe those are good products or not, and you don't use them, there's a whole ecosystem around Terraform that they've created. And Terraform is the core product. If you're making a product that's around Terraform, then you can still do that. They've declared that the APIs are still open and unrestricted. We're not making it like Red Hat which has put a licensing gateway around everything. You can't even use Red Hat in any form unless you're a signed up customer with IBM now, right? Right. That is not what HashiCorp's doing in this case. Will they go that way? I doubt it. I think HashiCorp has been really committed to open source. But you've also got to remember too that what happens if... So here's the thing that these people aren't talking about is what happens if AWS who is almost entirely driven by Terraform. It's a very popular way of automating. It says, we should have our own Terraform so that we can take it in the direction that we want. What happens then?
0: Because right. that's not open source, right? Is that not worse? I mean, that's my assumption and what HashiCorp went to the BSL for is a scenario just like that. Yes.
1: Yeah, and that would be worse because then AWS would take its you know, A-form offer in a completely different direction and, it have, and then you'd have this... Dis- this fractured market. That would be worse. These people should be. I think it's a little bit invidious to sit there and say, we're begging HashiCorp not to go down this path. We want them to turn it back into a, you know, give away your corporate jewels that you spent years developing and turn it into a foundation so that it's free. You know, I, I just, that's just not how the modern world works. The days of open source from 20 years ago doesn't work anymore. I, don't, I just, I'm, I'm fairly confident of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I sort of wonder if if they're worried that maybe, uh, right now I have a sense of HashiCorp as sort of being a, a fair dealer uh, in the tech space if mm. and when the company goes public and suddenly becomes beholden to investors and shareholders and so on, then may become a little more sharp elbowed, which maybe is something they're worried about down the line. Uh, and I can, could see that happening. Yep. Um, but I I also wonder if for a long time, you know, sort of the open source on the bottom and for-profit on top model of, of building a startup has been really appealing. Uh, to startups and investors, because you can, you know, get a faster uptake. You can build a community of users. You can get some free development. And there's sort of this perception of being maybe more ethical or upstanding by being associated with open source. And I sort of wonder if maybe VCs are going to be more wary of this model going forward because of the angst it seems to be causing. No, they already
1: are. No, I see that discussion in the forums that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that 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 the days of putting your product out there as an open source and then trying to build a business that's gone. That's finished. No right. one's doing that. Because there and are giant
0: predators out there who are looking to see what's useful in the open source space and just take it for yeah. themselves. Yeah.
1: And just take it. So if you spend, you know, imagine if you spent three years in a, you know, living on ramen and and hot tea, <laughs> do you know right. what I mean? <laughs> developing a product and then you find, so I would I would also wonder, does HashiCorp know that AWS has got something going on? Is there a movement inside of AWS already to do this?
0: i right. should say we have no that... evidence of that, but yes, I, that's who I think HashiCorp probably has in mind with, yes. with this move, yeah.
1: Now, keep in mind that what I think will happen from here is that HashiCorp would be well aware that if somebody forked a project, that it might get legs. And I bet, I'd bet i be confident to say that they have a significant number of substantial upgrades in the coming months to increase the gap between where the code is today. So if, if somebody like AWS was to come along and take, you know, fork it now, and this was the time to jump, they're going to say, well, that's great, but we're going to introduce all these new features which are highly desirable, and the gap between that and this is going to widen mm. rapidly. Mm-hmm. So that would make sense strategically. Don't forget that HashiCorp has a much larger portfolio around Terraform. And I think also, if you want to think what's happening here, remember back to Docker, Docker was open source and then it went to closed source and guess who who won there? And it wasn't open source. Right. Yeah. Now a lot of people left Docker and went somewhere else, but that was st- structurally because Docker was trying to charge too much. I think I went there they're not trying to take it, change the way that Terraform is charged or whatever, you can still get access to it. But Docker went from no open source to closed source, plus you had to pay like pack bags of cash to use it. So there's similarities and there's differences here, but it is viable to go back and recall what happened when Docker l- removed its open source and think about where we are today with Docker and containers.
0: I guess, although I would say I think Docker's bigger problem was that the value proposition shifted from the container itself to the orchestration layer, i.e. Kubernetes, uh, which was mm. something they just didn't have... Yeah, a way to monetize. Yeah, I'm around yeah,
1: Kubernetes took away what Docker was doing, replaced Docker right. with a with a more comprehensive solution, and embraced the parts like Docker wasn't handling hardware at all. It was just a software solution. It was almost like one computer. It wasn't really designed to spread across,
0: you know, hundreds. Right, of the value prop so- wasn't in the container. The value prop was in the orchestration. And That's right. Docker and they kind of miss that. Make yep. that transition, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. links in the show notes if you want to go read about it, including the OpenTF manifesto. Uh, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform. It supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors. It's got thousands of pre-built automations and a scripting-free way to build new ones. With Backbox, any task that can be performed manually on any device on the network, regardless of vendor, can be automated, intelligent, and conditional automation streamlined tasks that once took several steps to perform. For example, verifying available storage space on devices before you begin your OS upgrades. It's built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution. It's got role-based administration and REST API. It's a powerful, scalable network automation solution. And with their award-winning customer support, you are never on your own. See why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks on over 100,000 networks. You can get a free evaluation copy of the software for yourself. Just go to backbox.com slash packet That's backbox.com slash packet Couple more stories before we wrap uh first checkpoint software is going to acquire a secure services edge or sse vendor for 490 million sse vendors provide cloud-based security services uh the company checkpoint's acquiring is called perimeter 81 it offers firewalling as a service secure web gateway anti-malware and zero trust checkpoint says perimeter one has almost three thousand customers it's 2023 drew and checkpoint has suddenly realized that every
1: other security company but them has got an sse product Right. (laughs) Like, can we get some golf claps going? You know, it's like, (laughs) you know.
0: Better late um, than never.
1: Yeah. So Perimeter 81 appears to me to be about a mid-size SSE company. It was set up in 2018. It's got 200 employees and about 3,000 customers. That feels, with those sorts of numbers, five years in the business, unknown brand or, you know, new brand, feels like a low to mid-market business. You don't get 3,000 customers at the top end. You get them in the mid to low end. Does that oh, make
0: yeah. sense? Absolutely. Yep. 3,000 is a huge number for a company that I feel like you and I have never heard of. So it must be in the SMB space, something. I've never primarily. heard of it Yeah. <laughs> Which is not to say we're the be all and know all, but yeah, it's a, okay. a company of that size.
1: I got to wonder if they're in with some sort of service providers and they're counting the service providers, managed service customers as their customers or something. Be, but it will see. Could be, yes. Yeah. Yep. Weird things like that happen. Hard to tell. And I don't actually care enough to dig into it. Uh, Checkpoint, of course, is much smaller than its competitors. If you think, for example, uh, Fortinet and Palo Alto, uh, sort of in the forty-five to fifty-five billion range, Checkpoint is only a market capitalization of fifteen billion. So they're literally the company that basically almost invented the idea of firewalls to some extent, or, or certainly popularised the idea of
0: them. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And now they're just one-third the size of the of, of its main competitors. Uh, just to, just to get an idea of how backward they are. Today, Checkpoint is about $2.3 billion in annual revenue, making it roughly half the revenue of Fortinet or about a third of Palo Alto networks. Wow. Spending $490 million is a significant purchase when you have a market capitalization of $15 billion. So I would say that Checkpoint definitely feels like it's losing here and it's going in to paste over the gaps and hoping that it's, it could switch some of its customers from stopping them from leaking away to products from Fortinet or Palo Alto that they just don't have.
0: Yep. Mm. Yeah, hard to disagree with that uh, analysis, yep.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the the basic sentiment that I see, you know, in all the forums that I go and look into is that Checkpoint should be bleeding customers at a phenomenal rate. The number of customers who are saying, I've had enough, got to get out, got to get away. The product's still just as difficult as it always has been is significant. So maybe this is a way for them to get some new life and hold on to the existing customers.
0: Yeah. Well, it is de rigueur now for a security company to have uh, SSE or SASE in the portfolio. Um, so not a surprise. Mm, not a surprise. Uh, a new joint venture has been launched in the U.S. state of Virginia that would see the development of a data center campus powered by small modular nuclear reactors. The plan also includes the generation of hydrogen-based fuels. Uh, this is according to a story in the register. The plan is to build the data center first, and those data center users would be powered by existing electric utilities. And in the second phase, they would build out the small modular reactors, or SMRs. SMRs typically generate about one-third of the power of a large conventional reactor, and that's according to a stat I looked up in the International Atomic Energy Agency.
1: Small nuclear reactors or SMRs, small modular reactors is what they're normally called. They're mm-hmm. not actually here yet, Drew, right? I know. So this is a right. wishes and fishes. <laughs> right? <This Yes>. <laughs> there's an awful lot of ifs. <laughs> yes. Um, very, but there's a lot of interest in atomic energy as green energy, because the only way to build power plants is usually you build them in sort of the 300 to 500 megawatt range, or maybe even up to the 100 gigawatts, like really big ones. Yep. And they take... Decades to go through planning approvals and connecting to the grid. Uh Uh, The grid might, you know, the national grid might need to be updated to carry that much power. There's so much that goes into building a power station that it's improbable that existing governments are likely to support building power stations just to build data centers, right? That's not going to happen. But if you think about it, you build a data center, you've already got the physical security in place if you're going to put it. So Put a small modular reactor. One of the problems with small modular reactors is, if you put one in the ground, they take up a space of a of a foot of about two football fields. I don't really know if it's an English football field or an American football field, but you yeah, <laughs> right. get the idea. Sure. Right? Yes. <laughs> and there still has to be a secure perimeter placed around it. It's not like you just dig it in the ground, you bury it a few meters down, and there's some buildings over the top. And you, but you still have to have some physical security to make sure that it's being. Kept sure. safe, right? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, well, a data center already has the physical security. You have a built-in customer for it. Uh, cloud companies have plenty of cash to spend on capital, so they can afford to spend up big on a on a SMR type environment and give themselves some energy security. And especially in terms of going green, these would be potentially very green. Um, so I sort of feel like this is probably where we will see a lot of that. This you'll probably see a lot of marketing hype because of the reasons that I just outlined. Um, and it does make sense because the, the data centers, new data centers need 30 to 50 megawatts per data center. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to build a data a power just system that small. And governments don't want to build more power because they just want there's no votes in it, right? Who wants to put a power station in their town? Right. Well, really? I'd like
0: yes. So I, I did a little digging and it looks like the proposed site for the data centers is Surrey County, Virginia, which already has two giant nuclear reactors in the area. Uh, so mm-hmm. I guess maybe they're thinking we already got two big ones. Why not some small ones? Maybe the that the way could be eased. Uh, they also, in one of the press releases released by the two companies proposing this, they had a quote from uh, the, the governor of the state of Virginia. So I think that's also a hint that maybe they've got a little bit of government backing or at least potentially some government backing to make this happen.
1: Yeah. And, and because it's in a nuclear area, you've got a nuclear response. The local police have been trained or have procedures in the event that a nuclear event happens. Right, and maybe national... you get
0: low, less local pushback on having more reactors built in this area if they've already got two yeah. running. Yeah.
1: Once you're zoned for nuclear, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of supporting stuff that happens around. Yes. There.
0: So I think this yeah. is very strategic in in where they're locating this.
1: That's right, and you have to sort of integrate with the national nuclear response as well. So, in the UK, all of the nuclear is managed out of Gloucester, which is in a location that's most remote from all the nuclear reactors, for example, right? But there's an awful lot of people around that management centre who are nuclear trained and nuclear ready. Uh-huh. So, putting, you know, this type of stuff around where your existing nuclear uh, capabilities or nuclear technology is means you've got access to higher people and companies and resources. Right. To come on site and do the necessary maintenance, check the pipes, you know, all right. that sort of stuff. Right, right. Because you don't just, you know, ring up your local handyman to come and check the pipes on your SMR. It's a <laughs> specialist activity.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're not calling Roto-Rooter to fix your uh, nuclear reactor.
1: No, no. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll keep an eye on this and see what happens. It's probably going to take years anyway, but I think it's an interesting story and uh, there are a lot of issues here to get into, but we'll leave it because we have one more story to do before we wrap. Uh, An Italian cheese consortium is experimenting with putting microtransponders into wheels of Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese to thwart counterfeiters. Uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano is one of the foodstuffs that enjoys the protected designation of origin status in the EU, which means that only cheese made in a particular region of Italy can be called Parmesan.
1: Yes, if it, you know, and that's the other thing about sort of champagne, you know, it's just right. sparkling wine, but if it right. comes from the champagne district, it is actually champagne. champagne. Yep. And there's a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, there is a number of them uh, in England as well. Certain sausages can be come from certain regions. A Wensleydale cheese has to come from the Wensleydale region now. Mm-hmm. You can't just call a cheese Wensleydale okay. from it. Uh, yep. There's a whole bunch of them. <laughs> sort of, it's a very popular in Europe to try and get your.
0: Uh, designation, thing, design. yes. And I yeah. guess the reason that, that this uh, cheese consortium is doing it is because there is, uh, they say, they estimate up to 2 billion euros a year in, in counterfeit uh, cheeses being sold. So I guess that's that's real money.
1: Well, the flip side here is that um, this market is quite unique in the sense that the people who make Parmesan, it takes like 500 gallons of milk or liters of milk to make yep. one block of Parmesan. Yep. It just renders right down. Um, and then they take five to 10 years to mature. They have to be turned and so apparently what actually happens is the the farmers make them and then send them into a central store and there's a company that manages all of the Parmesan globally. Mm. And they hold it in the stocks and then they sell it out because it's too difficult for individual farmers to do this and this mid so you've actually got the situation where the Parmesan is actually all, all in a warehouse and can be controlled and tagged centralized in a structured Parmesan. <laughs> way. And this one company also has Incentives then to make sure that only there they are the only source of the parma, of red you know official Parmesan cheese. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see. But the calendar here is: Do you remember a few years ago, Drew, the blockchain was going to solve this? Right, exactly. Right, this is what blockchain <laughs> was made for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> except tracking it wasn't. Your except it's going to be tracking cheeses apparently, or if you believed the bollocks that was going around at that point in time. Um, the other thing here is that I wonder. I wonder, Drew, if you're going to put little sensors in there how hard is it to copy those sensors and produce counterfeit sensors to make it provably like, yes. the challenge with yes. raising the bar here and saying, you've got to find one of these inside of my cheese, you know, it gets put into the rind at manufacturing. Right. Is, is the sensor itself just an off the shelf easily copied, easily echoed? Cause we're seeing that now there are hacking tools that can, you know, you hold up, you know, the, Touch cards that you use to go in and out of building accesses. Right, you can right. now copy those just using a, a device. It's a two hundred dollar device. You just hold it nearby; it copies that, and away you go. What I, if I can do that with Parmesan cheese? Does that is that a yeah? <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> the incentive <is> there, right?
0: I try to imagine the recruitment letter on the dark web to get the hacker to to copy this. It's like, what are we going after? Are we going after a bank? Are we going after a government? We're doing cheese. We're counterfeit. We're doing cheese. Parmesan. Do <laughs> you know get how much board. money there is in cheese, buddy?
1: <laughs> I think that's great. I really do. I I think it's a, it's an interesting one to think of. Is that if you just raise the bar to making a counterfeit, you just raise the counterfeiting. You,
0: you know, D- you're just moving the problem up a level. I think
1: you're moving it up a level, but the challenge here is is the cost of this get it bypassing the counterfeit defeat capability right high enough to stop the counterfeiting and we see that every day everywhere right yep absolutely when, mm, so it'll be interesting to see if they actually chose something that's secure and um i i didn't not a single word mention of blockchain in this article by the way just, Thank just wanted to point I, that I, out i'm yeah. all for that yes yes <laughs> oh, yeah for sure <laughs> uh,
0: well just remember if the cheese isn't from northern italy it's only sparkling cheddar <laughs>
1: You, did, you went there. Yeah, I the did. Code, it, I How could I not? Uh, it was right there. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That wraps up the news portion. We don't have a Tech Bytes, Uh So Greg, if folks want to connect with you online somewhere, where should they go?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adithereal Mind. But increasingly, I'm on LinkedIn uh, because uh, there's a lot more. Uh, Twitter's just becoming more and more of a thing. So yeah, find me there. And also in our Slack group, you can join the Packet Pushes Slack just by heading on over to packapushes.net slash Slack. We've been picking up quite a few people. There's an interesting conversation. Make sure you ask your questions and chatter in there, chat amongst yourselves, talk about your problems, talk about the good things too. Um, yep. And I look forward to seeing you in the, in the Slack channel. Yep.
0: Uh, I'm Drew Connery Murray. I'm on Blue Sky at Drew CM and I'm also on Mastodon at DrewCM. CM. And you can find my blogs at PacketPushers.net And I occasionally pop into the, the Slack channel as well on Packet Pushers. Uh, thanks to Backbox for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for joining us for yet another episode of Network Break. If you like the show, uh, give us a like on Facebook, leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. As always, thanks for listening.